Now we've got a lot to get through with this episode. Um, let me just, uh, before we go any further, yeah. though, we're going to take a little uh, look into the publication history of uh, of the X Men and how we got here, how we get to where we are in the year two thousand with this 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 uh, groundbreaking movie coming out that really really set the table for movie producers Hollywood to look at comic book properties and superheroes and say, yeah. That's what we want. It's 1963 when uh, X-Men first comes out. I mean, Marvel have already had big success, Will, with Fantastic Four, as we discussed, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Hulk. So Stanley decides he's going to create another team book because that was what was popular. We said before uh, Justice League had become popular and Fantastic Four was a big hit as well. So... At this point, Stan and Jack had already created a series of, of bizarre origins for every character. Ant-Man, you know, there's, mm. there's a radioactive spider bite and a rocket ship accident and a gamma bomb and heart shrapnel. <laughs> and basically, they didn't want to have to do that all over again in one book for four or five characters. So, as essentially a time-saving exercise, <laughs> Stanley came up with one way to explain all powers in one roll of the dice. One origin for every character, mm. right? And it was okay. They were born with their powers. They are, they are mutated. They are mutated people. Yes. We talked before uh, about how uh, it, it's really obvious when you when you when you go back and take a look that Marvel Comics were the black mirror of their day. You know, oh, they were the black mirror of the sixties. Twisted science fiction tales with fears ripped from their headlines. The same year that Stan and Jack create the X Men. America, Britain, and the Soviet Union signed the Partial Test Ban Treaty, limiting the scope of nuclear weapons testing, which had been rife since the end of the of the Second World War, right throughout the fifties. Mm. You know, the press was full of stories about the testings that had taken place all over the globe, the Manhattan Project, um, there's testing in New Mexico, in Nevada, um, the Castle Bravo um, incident out in the Pacific Ocean. Which is really messed up. Oh, they I didn't know about a bomb. that. Sorry. They tested a bomb out there on an uninhabited island, and it ended up being like three or four times more powerful than they ever imagined. And the fallout was carried out towards Japan. Um, there's scores of fishermen that were caught up in the in the in the fallout. Horrific. Uh, Russia were testing in Kazakhstan. All of Ka- Kazakhstan was like their nuclear test zone. You know, it's the world had begun to see the dangerous results of radiation exposure mm. and that's the basis for these characters that's the idea that this nuclear testing all over the world has irradiated people without them knowing it which was the huge fear of the 50s and 60s and then their children are born with these mutations and these mutations in the Marvel Universe present as exciting powers rather than cancer <laughs> Um, <laughs> which is the realistic, you know, thing yeah. that would happen. Um, the idea of mutation does get muddied over the decades. It becomes more popular in the X Men comics to focus on this idea that they're the next stage in human evolution, which is some of the first words said in this movie, um, and and that it kind of becomes that that replaces this idea of mutation. Really, it really does. Uh, that becomes the more 
the more fantastical element that the, the, the writers and, and fans gravitate towards. Um, the original X-Men sees Professor X teaching five teenagers. And again, we're right at that time when teenagers are a really exciting new concept. Um, and that's kind of what Marvel wants to be doing and writing about. You've got Spider-Man, and that's it. There are no other teenage superheroes. So Stan throws five out there in one go. Cyclops, Beast, Angel, Iceman, and Marvel Girl, Jean Grey. And they, they, you know, they, they battle evil mutants, and they have a, a lot of classic pre-war superhero issues. They mm. have secret identities, for one. They all wear masks, and, and that's a big deal. And it's less of a big deal in the way that other secret identities are. Oh, my enemies will come and they'll target my families. That's the kind of the, the Batman idea and the Superman idea. This is more to do with uh, mutants are lynched by lynch mobs. Yeah. They are... By in in suburban areas, metropolitan areas, it is full of, of of fear. So, Angel, who has these great big glorious bird wings, has to strap and bind the wings to his back with these like leather straps if he wants to go out in public. Beast isn't covered in blue fur yet. Uh, Beast that doesn't happen to Beast until the seventies, mm. but he's got these abnormal hands and feet and he's very thick and stocky so he always has to hide he's got simian monkey like hands and feet he has to bind his feet and he has to hide his hands in gloves and things so they all work at maintaining these secret identities as normal teenagers sometimes even from their own parents who think that their kids are going to like a boarding school rather than you know know their kids are mutants basically there's the classic Stanley tortured love triangle uh, because we all know Stanley's <laughs> bread and butter, them romance comics. He never gave up on them from the fifties. So Cyclops, Marvel Girl, and Angel are stuck in this love triangle. But um, to be fair to it, the X Men comics kind of suck. They are not Stan and Jack's best work at all. Okay. They lack a huge amount of what is present in. Iron Man, Spider-Man, even the Avengers. And towards the end of the 60s, sales are terrible. Marvel cancels the book. Uh, the, the characters graduate from Xavier's school, and that's kind of it. They're done. Um, they crop up in other, in other comics here and there, and they have this vibe of, yeah, my name's Scott, I used to be a superhero, now I'm in marketing, Ooh. I'm retired, you know. There's no more X-Men for five years. And then in 1975, Marvel bring in uh, Len Wein and Dave Cochran to relaunch the X-Men series. Uh, Len Wein had already created Swamp Thing for DC Comics. And he created a character to appear in two issues of The Hulk. Mm. A bizarre Canadian superhero called The Wolverine. And uh, Wein and Cochran created a brand new cast of mutants to replace the old team uh, we reused Wolverine who was not a mutant in his first appearances not intended to be a mutant, nothing like that he going, okay I, can ha- I, can, I, can, I like the design of this character, let's use this character with the claws, so they go he's a mutant now and he's putting a team with Storm Nightcrawler, Colossus Thunderbird and Sunfire um, and that's a very diverse group then, you've got a Canadian a Russian, a Kenyan 
someone from Japan, a German, and a Native American. And they are all fighting each other <laughs> as much as they are the enemy. And almost... I mean, before before what happened next happened, the X-Men were kind of a blip. They could very easily have faded away into absolute obscurity. And I don't want to take anything away from what Stan and Jack did in the 60s and, and the ideas they created, you know, Magneto and, and, and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and all this kind of stuff, and the very idea of mutants. But the the most important moment, probably the second most important moment in the history of the X-Men comes after a couple of issues of this relaunch series where Marvel hand writing duties over to Chris Claremont. Okay. Chris Claremont really is the father of the X-Men. He writes the book for 16 years. Way more than Stan did. He creates an absolute golden age. It's akin to the 100 issues that Stan and Jack did on Fantastic Four, where they created not just the Fantastic Four, but issue after issue, they go, uh, next issue, here's Wakanda and, and Black Panther. <laughs> and the issue after that, oh, here's the Negative Zone and Annihilus and Blastar. And issue after that, here's Galactus and the Silver Surfer. And bam, 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 they are knocking out these incredible sci-fi ideas. That's the 100-issue run of Stan and, and, and Jack on Fantastic Four. It's It's incredible. Right up there with that, for my money, is Clement writing X-Men for 16 years. He creates Rogue, Gambit, Mystique, Mr. Sinister, Sabretooth, um, scores more. He gets, to my mind, and uh, you know what, to everyone's mind, he gets all the credit for turning Wolverine into this incredibly popular anti-hero and megastar. Yeah. Because when he was created, he had none of that. What right? was he? He was intended to be... He's a he's a secret agent uh, superhero for the CIA and he's got claws. That's it. Uh. And it's when Claremont takes over that he goes. Um, he's got a healing ability and and he's 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 been alive for a long time and he's got amnesia and he and he's and he's gruff and he's angry and he doesn't like people and all of that. Claremont writes the Phoenix Saga. He writes Days of Future Past. He writes the Proteus Saga. Huge stories, huge science fiction stories. He gives the X Men this incredible scope to go out into space with the Shi'ar Empire and gives them the connection over there. He doesn't just create these amazing sci fi stories, though, he makes the soap opera drama of the team the most exciting part and important part of the book. Mm. Just like Stan and Jack did in the 60s with the ones that worked. <laughs> and under Claremont, the X Men books in the 80s become Marvel's top selling book from being cancelled in the 60s to the biggest selling title that Marvel are doing it spawns other top selling series like Wolverine gets his own series and then there's the X-Factor series and the New Mutants series and eventually the X-Force series X-Men under Claremont becomes a brand that sells the Marvel Universe has summer crossovers every summer a big crossover where all the superheroes get together and it sells well X-Men were the only ones that got their own crossovers and didn't take part in the other ones because they're a brand that was almost as big as the rest of Marvel on their own. Mm. They, 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 were, they were almost kind of separate, even though they're not. It's all the same universe, but they were, they were, they were in the 80s, they were just huge. And in 1991, Marvel tapped Claremont to launch a second X-Men comic. They've got Uncanny X-Men, which he's been writing... We want to do another one just simply called X-Men. 
and they launched that with Clement and a superstar artist called Jim Lee. Issue 1, 1991, issue 1 of X-Men, that book becomes the biggest selling comic book of all time, and it still is today. Mm. It sells over 8 million copies in 1991 of a single one issue series. Oof. Not single one, but one issue sells 8 million copies. And, you know, he he really is you know, transformed. He turned X-Men to a franchise. And all everyone's favourite memories of the X-Men are from Clement writing it. I genuinely, you know, that's what turned it into. And it's off the back of that popularity that in, you know, it gets the, the cartoon series, it gets the, the pilot, um, Pride of the Avengers, and that success of that and the success of this comic inspires Fox to kind of give it a, a go as a as a cartoon series. Um sadly in the nineties Marvel makes the mistake of Letting both Clement and Jim Lee leave the leave the X Men, and they 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 see the X Men as a license to print money. They start churning out spin off more and more spin off comics. Almost every character gets a separate series. They just dilute the stories, dilute the characters. Um, they don't necessarily they don't have enough cohesion. They don't have one mind behind the whole um, book like they did when it was just Clement. And so storylines are set up open-ended and never finished and they go on for years and years and years and you never get a payoff and the x-men line just becomes woefully convoluted and very bloated and it, and it really i mean it luckily marvel goes bankrupt and everything kind of gets covered up by how terrible the whole company is in the 90s but it's really really uh, a shame that it was so easily and quickly um urinated up the wall <laughs> Everything that had been built from from the seventies through the eighties, mm. um, but the nugget that comes out of that is that the cartoon series sold on the on the success of the comic books becomes a huge success. Great ratings, spawns spawns top selling toy lines and merchandise like lunch boxes and thermoses and and collectors cups and they have the, they have a McDonald's toy deal. Yep. You know that was a big thing in the day. Ah, oh, that's where I and got that, the toy from. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and that convinces Fox Studios, because of this success, to purchase the movie rights. Mm. That's why we're doing this detour. Because it's all connected. You can't just look at the MCU films to understand how we got here. You, you, you've got to go back further. You've got to say the MCU happened because of movies like X-Men. And and the X-Men movie happened because of the 90s cartoon series. And, and that happened because of the comic books. And Marvel's been taken over popular culture for decades. It's not new. That's why the detour is here. On that journey. So there we go. That's how we get to the year 2000 and this movie. I think it's worth we take a little look. We did in the first X-Men episode, we took a look at the origins of the characters in the 1950s and 60s. The origins of the fears and where they came from. It's... It's time for this this episode to take a look at kind of the more modern history of the publication of the X Men, and um, we, we took ourselves last time from the sixties through to Chris Claremont's revolutionary, incredible, uh, redefining run in the nineteen eighties. If mm. you didn't hear it, go back and take a look, listen. The X Men was a minor title that nobody really paid attention to, and pretty much got cancelled. And throughout the seventies, it only existed as repeats. They would reprint old episodes, old old issues, 
and then this guy Chris Claremont comes along after he gets relaunched and transforms it from a let's not even pay attention comic book into Marvel's number one best selling book which is a great great feat and he wrote that comic for 17 years that is a huge feat that is a huge feat and then we went through the, the, the barren wasteland of the 90s as we as Marvel goes through. Every time we do these ones, we go, <laughs> and then there was the 90s. And oh, good Lord. And and don't get me wrong, X-Men had some, some, some... I mean, mainly Age of Apocalypse is a really, really great um, event and series, a uh, crossover event, series of comic books and, and stories. It's really, really brilliant. And a lot of fun. And that's something to really pay attention to. But outside of that, there was struggling. Marvel really needed to energise the X-Men when the, the movie came out. Because you it's embarrassing to have a hit movie and a failing comic book that goes with it. That is an embarrassment. It's mm. embarrassment to have people converted from going to see the movie coming to pick up a comic book that is creatively stunted that you all know is creatively stunted so the year 2000 the first X-Men movie comes out and at the same time Marvel change who their editor-in-chief is Okay, writer, a visionary writer and artist called Joe Quesada who had began life as a self-published creator self-published writer-artist and then an independent um, creator and then worked his way up through doing very, very good business with with uh, Marvel Comics on some smaller titles. He suddenly becomes the editor in chief of Marvel Comics. It was a, it felt like a real left field choice, and it mm. proved to be one of the things that saved that company. Right on top of the money from the from the new investors and new owners, Joe Quesada understands talent like nobody else at that time, and he because he was in the trenches as a writer-artist, knows the right people. Yeah, yeah. So he installs, as the the new helm of X-Men, a Scottish writer called Grant Morrison. Now, an an incredible science fiction author, Morrison has that British comic book edge that comes from writing twisted stories for 2000 AD and all these small publishers oh yes and Morrison had just got on the back of a multiple year run taking DC Comics failing Justice League and what Justice League was in the dirt in the gutter when Grant Morrison was handed the comic no one was buying Justice League at DC which sounds weird now to say it because they've had big hit movies and all that but there was a period of time in the 90s where traditional superheroes were not being bought and Grant Morrison transformed Justice League into this best-selling comic book series again shot them to the top of not just DC's sales charts but the entire industry sales charts he gained a reputation of being able to give a modern edge to tired old superheroes that was Grant Morrison's thing Mm. so Joe Quesada takes one look at this dude who wants to get out of DC because of some issues to do with the Matrix and things like that, which we can't get into right now. Okay, 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 that's fine. And, and he says, take X-Men and, and can you do the same for them that you did for the Justice League? Can you bring those sensibilities to it? Mm. And, and, and that's really what happens. So all the costumes that the X-Men characters have 
which are all kind of different and stylized, and they are superhero costumes with masks. They all get thrown out. And the team gets redesigned by an artist called Frank Quitely, another British writer, uh, artist, sorry, another British creator. And the team is given a, a look very similar to the movie. Lots of black leather, leather jackets, <laughs> leather trousers, little bit of like yellow piping. That's kind of it, really. Yeah. And, it, and it makes them look more in line with the comic books. And Grant Morrison sets about immediately revitalizing the mutant world. He introduces these concepts, these really big, high concept science fiction concepts that stayed with the X Men for, for, for decades after he's left. Um, the, these ideas that. that the ex mutants are facing extinction across the globe. They're not the new hot thing anymore emerging. Mm. They're now about to be wiped out. They, he re-emphasizes the idea that Xavier's is a school and there are children there. And that gives them the chance to inject loads of new characters who have gone on to, you know, great enduring success after he left. It it's a it's a massive commercial. it's a critical success as well. Everyone agrees this is the best X Men since Claremont left. It might even be the best X Men ever written. It's really, really good. It's also a huge commercial success. It becomes the best selling book in the entire industry. So that that was that was what happened right as the first X Men movie came out, right where we left off. This movie though isn't based on anything new like that. And and things like this rarely are because Movies are in production for quite a long time, in development for quite a long time. Um, this movie is based pretty much entirely on a 1982 graphic novel called God Loves, Man Kills, mm. which was created by Chris Claremont, that visionary writer we talked about from the 80s, and Brent Anderson, a very... <clears throat> a very emphatic... Artist, he he really projects a lot of emotion into his work, and and that's a story similar to to this movie. It's about a TV evangelist preacher, and his fundamentalist hard right followers who hate anything different from them, and believe mutants to be an abomination against God. Mm. And it begins with two black children being murdered by this Ku Klux Klan style group. murdered in a playground and strung up on the swings with signs tied around their neck that say mutie as a derogatory term for mutant mutie and being being a a one-off graphic novel it's it's not published as part of the x-men's regular monthly comic book Mm. that allows them to be more overt with with what they're talking about and it's Clement hammers home in this. The fact that they are black children murdered in the first, the very start. This is about race. The X Men can be used to talk about gender and sexuality and anything that's other. The mm. X Men can stand in for anything that is outside the norm of what what or what we consider the norm of life. But Clement is is very upfront from the start of this graphic novel that this particular story is about race. And there are very strong themes throughout it of, for instance, um, pa- being able to pass. So there are some mutants that are able to pass, in inverted commas, yeah. as humans because they look more like humans. 
and and that's something that's very st- very strong racial overtones and racial themes. You know that there are people of color that are able to pass as white, and do they have an easier life or a harder life, and how does that go about? Um, and 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 it's a, it's a, a really groundbreaking graphic novel. It, it's it's really shatters a lot of conventions. It sees the X Men as a team suffer a crisis of faith in what they believe in. Do they believe in? Ex- Charles Xavier's dream and it is named a dream from the 70s onwards very intentionally to tie it to Martin Luther King do they believe still in in, in Xavier's dream of of living and integrating with humanity peacefully and how are they able to kind of pull back from this guttural instinct to give in to anger and to fight back when children are being murdered and it puts Magneto and Xavier um, at odds, and then having to put those differences aside to work together, and tons of of this graphic novel appear in the movie. The school is attacked by by um, paramilitary forces. Xavier's kidnapped and brainwashed. There's a device that can be used to kill mutants. You know, very so. It, it really is almost entirely taken from this one graphic novel. The difference being that the graphic novel is very clear and very strong that it is about the religious right, it is about the clan, mm. and it is about racial overtones. Rather than the movie, which goes in this more sanitised um, I, I guess military direction. What we all want to know, Rob, the, the the nuts and bolts, the lemons that are within Marvel versus Marvel. Could you please tell us, give us, give us some more history behind Wolverine, because we need more. Uh, if history had gone a little bit differently, Will, we'd be sitting down today to discuss the movie X Men Origins Badger. <laughs> because... Sorry, my brother has an obsession with badges, because so it's doubly funny for me. That was the original name for Wolverine's character when he was being dreamed up. This is fantastic. This is fantastic. Uh, what kind so, of badger? Is like a honey badger or a British badger? Because the, the 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 legendary Marvel writer and editor Roy Thomas is the man who succeeded Stanley, as we've talked in about before. He succeeded Stanley as editor in chief and and guiding creative force at Marvel mm. Comics. He wrote practically every Marvel comic that there there was, and he created seminal characters like Ultron and Vision. Um, he, he invented adamantium, because that's what Ultron is, is made of. Hmm. And in 1974, he decided, partly because of pressure from the parent company, that, that Marvel needed to have um, a character to appeal to all their Canadian readers. Hmm. And he decided the new super character should be based on a fearsome North American animal like the badger. Uh, <laughs> so he, he gave an interview and he explained, uh, when I decided we should have a Canadian character and even that it would be named after a fierce northern animal, I was conflicted between Wolverine and Badger. <laughs> Finally, I decided that Badger had the connotations of heckling and nagging whilst Wolverine virtually had the word wolf in it. Wolverine sounds like slashing. I don't know because it's been imprinted in our heads because of our association with the character. But Badger, because we're British, what do you think of when you think of Badger? You think a lovely character from the, w- w- the, the Wind in the Willows. 
just to go back to his quote there, Wolverine virtually had the word wolf in it. Then call the character the wolf, Roy. <laughs> don't don't go out of your way to find other words that happen to sort of have the word wolf. If the wolf is a really good name for a character, call him wolf. Anyway, um, Thomas himself wouldn't do any actual writing when it came to Wolverine. He was too busy just doing everything else at Marvel. Um, so he handed the character over to other creatives to design and write. He gave his team, though, three directives when it came to Wolverine. One, the character is Canadian and announced that almost immediately. It is prominently announced that he is Canadian. Two, he was short. He had to be short because Wolverine is a small animal. And three, he had to have a quick temper because Wolverines are known for being fierce and taking on beasts far bigger than they are. Um, legendary artist John Romita was Marvel's art director at the time. He handled a huge amount of art tasks that weren't associated with drawing a monthly comic. It was Romita's job to create the design and look of this brand new character, which had no backstory and had no script yet. It just had those three directives. So Romita created a design that featured this iconic yellow and blue costume that would endure uh, in comic books and video games and cartoons for, for decades to come. The original Wolverine mask had what we consider now on Wolverine's mask from the from, from, from the cartoons and everything, those almost Batman-like ears that come up from the side. They were really short, like the short ears of some sort of Wolverine or Badger character. And he had these black stripes across the face, giving the rather bizarre appearance of whiskers. That's 100% what they were. Wolverine's original mask had whiskers on them. John Romita was also responsible, perhaps the most important detail in, in the history of the character. He gave Wolverine claws Ooh. sticking out from his gloves. In fact, to begin with... Wolverine's claws were only ever intended to be a feature of his costume, like a, a, <laughs> a gadget, a weapon that he used. They, they would pop out of the gloves, pop back into the gloves, but they were not meant to be part of his body or his powers. The, the, the task of then introducing Wolverine to the Marvel Universe and creating his... Um, his personality and his story, that was handed to a writer called Len Wein. Len Wein is an, was, uh, sadly passed away, an absolute powerhouse of creativity um, in comic books. He worked for virtually every major publisher that mattered, and he left an incredible lasting mark on, on the business. Wein created characters like Nightcrawler and Storm and Colossus for Marvel, he co-created Swamp Thing and Lucius Fox for DC Comics. Hmm. Um, and he was the editor for Alan Moore's Watchmen, which ah. was a Herculean task. And then he moved on from comics and he was a writer for television. And he wrote for Batman the Animated Series, the Animated X-Men, Animated Spider-Man. He wrote for Transformers, Ben 10, a bunch of other, like loads and loads of well-remembered, fondly-remembered cartoon, cartoon shows. Um, he was just uh, he was bursting with creativity and, and he was bursting with characters and stories and he's sadly missed mm. he, Wien 
crafted a three-part story in The Incredible Hulk, which acted as Wolverine's debut, introduced him to, to the world. The, the Hulk finds himself in Canada, where he's lured into a mystical situation featuring the Wendigo. The, the, the Wendigo is a genuine mythological evil spirit, um, sort of that the, comes from the First Nation, the indigenous people uh, in North okay. America, and that plagues the forest of Canada. In the Marvel Universe, any man who turns to cannibalism in these North American regions is transformed by this curse into a huge animalistic white haired monster. It's a seriously cool character. It's like a spiritual, supernatural Hulk monster. It's really cool. And the Hulk and Wendigo have battled many times. This time they get into this huge battle and the rampage draws the attention of the Canadian military who deployed their very own costumed super agent to deal with these two monsters, the Wolverine. (laughs) Five foot five... Tiny little dude with whiskers on his mask, and he attacks these two giant monsters with his claws. Like the epitome of what Roy Thomas wanted. You know, short, mm. fearsome, going after people bigger than him all the time. Um, uh, the very first thing Wendigo does, uh, sorry, Wolverine does, is he stabs the Wendigo in the throat. Oh! <laughs> and, and he only survives because it's supernatural. But it's just it's just immediately taken out of the fight. <laughs> he just stabs him right in that goddamn throat. He just sounds um, like a Scotsman. He sounds so Scottish. Small stabs you in the throat in a fight or something. I think we're going to get letters about that one, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. My granddad's Scottish. He filled me in on all these facts. Uh, but but the Hulk very easily beats uh, Wolverine with like one glancing blow. And later on, the Canadian military arrive and. They have to like take over yeah. the the job that Wolverine couldn't do, and and that's pretty much the end for the Wolverine. Nobody would see him again until the next year, because in 1975, Roy Thomas has another big idea, and that is to resurrect the X Men. Ah, uh, yes. A great companion piece of this episode is our X Men movie episode, the the, the 2000 film X Men. Um, go back and check that one out. You'll remember from that that the X-Men comic book was not popular in the 60s. One of the early creations of Stanley and Jack Kirby. But it didn't sell very well and it got cancelled. Well, By 1975, Marvel was ready to essentially reboot the series and try again. With a like a fresh, dynamic new team of, of mutants. And they weren't so interested in them all being teenagers anymore. <laughs> Marvel's parent company at the time Cadence Industries they they had this big mandate with Marvel that Marvel needed to have more international appeal with its characters and part of that is what led to the creation of a Canadian superhero but it would impact the X-Men as well the X-Men was now meant to be like the Captain Planet concept um, <laughs> we had to have Characters from gathered different nationalities and backgrounds. So we get Nightcrawler from Germany, Colossus mm. from Russia, Storm from Kenya, Banshee from Ireland. Um, and the creative team behind this reboot was um, artist Dave Cockrum and writer Len Wein. And Wein decided to reuse the Canadian Wolverine character from his Hulk story. And just like that, Wolverine went from being 
a costumed secret agent guy to a mutant. Um, because you have to be a mutant if you're going to be in the X-Men. Indeed. Uh, both Roy Thomas, the, the guy who came up with the idea initially, and Len Wein, the writer, they had intended for Wolverine to be a young college-age superhero like Spider-Man. Ooh. But he'd only ever been drawn with his mask on. And they never got a chance to show that he was a young kid in those, in those stories. Once the new X-Men series began for real, the artist Dave Cockrum, he drew Wolverine with his mask and his costume off for the first time, and he was no kid. Wolverine was drawn to be considerably older than the rest <laughs> of the X-Men. A man in his 40s with long sideburns and a hairy chest, kind of a Clint Eastwood look. Yeah. Um, and once it's down on the page, it has to stay. So, kiss goodbye to teenage Wolverine <laughs> as a concept. Um, the, the, the rebooted X-Men series was immediately handed to a 24-year-old writer called Chris Claremont, who is essentially the father of the X-Men. And he spends 16 years writing the comic book, melding the classic Marvel soap opera that we're used to, and the tension. Good guys can hate each other and have tension. And, and the, 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 the high drama of, of the emotional world, with the high concept of like science fiction stories. They go into outer space, and they fight giant mutant-hunting robots from the future, and... And, and and thrilling action and, and twists and turns and deaths and also deals with like the painful real world issues like apartheid, like racism. Um Clement transformed the X Men from this book that was so crap no one bought it and it got cancelled into the best selling comic book in the world. And, and, and turned the X Men to a franchise. Clement made the X Men into the team for Generation X. And Wolverine is intrinsically such a big part of that success. It's Claremont that gives Wolverine the character and personality that we all know to this day, modelling him on Clint Eastwood. This sort of Dirty Harry meets the outlaw Josie Wales, a tough, (laughs) gruff, violent warrior who... But who always does the right thing, no matter how much it pains him. Um, Claremont came up with the name Logan for him and uh, fashioned his long-standing passion for Jean Grey and his bubbling tension with everybody else, like everybody. And Claremont gives him this mysterious, deep past, this past so mysterious not even Wolverine knows it or remembers where he came from. Um, Wolverine was insanely popular. I mean, Wolverine was dangerous in a way that very few comic book characters in the mainstream were allowed to be. Mm. He was a violent, the violent anti-hero uh, that was really popular in, in cinema in the seventies and eighties. Wolverine reflected that for perhaps some of the earliest times, like before Punisher hit his mark and really became popular. Wolverine was there doing some of that. Claremont, Claremont's X-Men had a lot of dark tones to it. 
and one of them was that Wolverine would straight up murder villains <laughs> if he thought they deserved it. I mean, not just Wolverine, Rogue murdered people as well. I mm. mean, the X Men could be very dark at times, um, but that level of danger with Wolverine made him stand out in the rest of the Marvel Universe. He became the breakout character of the X-Men and and probably the breakout character of Marvel Comics in general. I mean, he was a huge part of why that book was so insanely popular in the 80s and the 90s. There were all these fan magazines that that ran polls of most popular hero. Wolverine won like eight, nine years in a row, just constantly the most popular character. Um, He was spun off into his own miniseries which I really recommend and fleshed out parts of his background and past and he received his own ongoing series so now he's in the multiple X-Men comics monthly and he's in his own Wolverine comic every month as well and then the Wolverine comic gets so popular they start having to print it twice a month because they can just sell that much Wolverine comics to people um, and, and, and he then gets what I like to call the Spider-Man nod since the 1960s Spider-Man had been Marvel's most popular character and Mm. it became a statistical fact that if you had Spider-Man make a guest appearance in another comic book stick him on the front cover that comic book will sell a lot more comics right so that's what they did Spider-Man is always guest starring in loads of other comics to get readers to go and buy them by the end of the 80s Wolverine was becoming that character. He was Marvel's second most popular character, and he's now guest starring in everything all the damn time. Because if you put Wolverine in a book, kids will buy it. Um toys, video games, merchandise. Wolverine was on all of it. He was everywhere. Clothes t-shirts and clothes. Um and when Fox Kids launches the X-Men animated series in nineteen ninety two once again, all over again, Wolverine becomes the breakout star. Let's take a trip behind the page of the New Mutants now and take a look at how these characters were first created in their brief history. Uh, not brief history, but their, a, yeah. a brief dive into their history. Um, we go back to the early 1980s, a time in which the Ultimate, uh, ultimate the Uncanny <laughs> X-Men um, comic has become an absolute powerhouse. Um, thanks to writer Chris Claremont and groundbreaking stories like the Dark Phoenix saga and Days of Future Past, the X-Men have gone from being an obscure bunch of characters... Uh, and, and a comic that was cancelled um, to not only being revived but becoming the most pop, one of the most popular comics in the entire world. Mm. Um, and you can't just sit on success like that. So, <laughs> editor in chief of Marvel at the time, Jim Shooter, who we've talked about an awful lot, he approaches Chris Clement about creating a spin-off, something that was rarely done in comic books at the time, a mm. secondary title based on the X Men. We can't let this uh, heat just go to uh, just go to waste. Um, it seems kind of odd to think of it now because there are dozens of comics dedicated to the X Men. Um, you know, Uncanny X Men, X Men, X Factor, Generation X, X Force, Wolverine, <laughs> Deadpool. Um, you know, scores more. But what we're talking about is the very first 
spin-off X-Men project. Mm. This is the very first time Marvel expands the X-Men's little pocket of the Marvel Universe. It's the first moment the X-Men goes from being a single comic to being a franchise in and of itself. And, you know, within... I mean, by the end of the 80s, not even 10 years later... The X-Men would have so many interconnected comic books that they could have their own like massive X-Men storylines and mm. crossover events that never involve any of the rest of the Marvel characters because they've just developed their own section of the universe. Mm. And that all starts right right here with Jim Shooter deciding um that the X-Men are so popular they can sustain a second title a second comic book a shooter was very hard-nosed about things like this we talked um we talked about him strong-arming some other decisions along the way uh in 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 the past he the x-men editor louise simonson um has recalled this period and said neither chris nor i really wanted to do it we wanted the X-Men to be special and by itself. But Jim Shooter told us that if we didn't come up with a new mutant book, someone else would. Mm. So Louise Simonson and Chris Kleiman were essentially backed into a corner. Either double your workload and expand the X-Men, or you'll have to hand your characters over to someone else at Marvel and sh- suddenly share control of what you spent the, the, the whole 70s building and creating <laughs> and turning into a success. Mm. So Clement decides to sort of give Jim Shooter what he wants. Right. Instead of a second comic book featuring the mega popular characters of the X-Men, like Cyclops and Storm and Wolverine, instead of like splitting the comic, like it, it feels like what Jim Shooter wanted was another comic <laughs> that would be another fra- like split the characters like we've got lots of x-men take half of them and put them in this comic right mm. but climate was never going to do that um he he, he comes up with a, a comic that would be adjacent to the x-men series mm. climate an artist called bob mcleod came up with a concept that focused on a forgotten aspect of the x-men stories of their history mm. which is charles xavier running a school that helps young mutants right the series began by focusing on a and a Charles Xavier battling depression, um, which had been established in in the X Men comics. Over the recent events of the X Men, he'd he'd watched like a lot of of, of the X Men die. He'd seen you know Jean Grey nearly destroy the universe and then commit suicide. Um, he's grieving about Thunderbird and some of the characters that that have have passed away under his watch, and then like um. The, he'd also recently been led to believe that all the X-Men had been killed yeah. uh, while he wasn't around. And this is something that utterly crushes um, Xavier. And, and sort of everything he's worked towards has turned to ash and dust. And he's not in a good place. The New Mutants then would see Xavier coaxed back into rescuing and teaching a new generation of, 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 teenage, of teenage mutants... Um, that are struggling with their powers but it is this very hard line that is right from the start instead of training them to become x-men and superheroes and go into fighting magneto he forbids these children from ever entering that dangerous world that Mm. 
that has claimed so many lives of the of the of the of the children, the students that he used to have, and that's so he's simply just a school to help and teach youngsters. This um, team that Clement and McLeod come up with was intended to originally debut in their own series, um, New Mutants issue one. Um, but as the first issue was nearing completion, Jim Shooter steps in again and orders it to be completely reworked into a graphic novel to help save another side project of his. Mm. So he'd come up with a something called Marvel Graphic Novels, a, a line of graphic novel trade paperbacks published between... Uh, well, I think it, uh, it lasted about ten years until the nineties, right? Um, the the books were over what Americans called oversized formats, so they're they're roughly the same size as as British comics, European okay. comics, right? Um, you think of Arbino and Dandy and stuff, which but, are like what you might consider newspaper size. Oh, you mean like the not number of pages, but the actual uh, size of the pages themselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah sort of eight by eleven. Eight yeah, inches yeah, by eleven, yeah, yeah. Um, which is not how the comics are in America. Of course, they have these these smaller ones that have become the, the mm. norm. Um, uh, Jim Shooter kind of envisioned this project as as creating books um, in the European format with cardboard covers, Ooh. full color, slick pages. Yeah, um, I'm not. I don't think it really technically, especially this New Mutants one. I don't know if you can really consider it a graphic novel because they all tend to be around 22, 24, 30 pages, which is the length of a comic. Um, but they're meant to be self-contained stories and in a prestige format. So um, that was what was going for. Mm. The, the, the the very first edition of the graphic of Marvel graphic novels was The Death of Captain Marvel ah. in 1982. Um, but it was running into a lot of problems because... Part of the uh, vision between, behind the Marvel graphic novels was to do so, like balance it between having some Marvel stories, but also bringing in um, writers and artists to publish their own work that were not owned by Marvel. Ooh. So it would be a, a strange release format to kind. He was trying to go for this up, upscale, upmarket prestige. You know, he was trying to go for a, a different kind of. Um, different kind of market but he's facing a lot of delays with the contracts that would allow these guys to come in and um, mm. publish their work for marvel but marvel wouldn't own it but they'd get this percentage and that so the next issue issue four of marvel graphic novels is about to miss its deadline to avoid that from happening jim shooter <laughs> delays the start of the new mutants and orders climate and mcleod and louise simonson to basically adapt the first issue of the New Mutants and turn it into a graphic novel for this for this format, which is what they do. Mm. The first appearance of them is in this odd, oversized Marvel graphic novel, um, and then the story continues in uh, New Mutants issue one. The the team to, to sort of mirror it was intended to mirror the X Men team of the seventies, who all came from different countries and different backgrounds. Mm. The New Mutants team was were made up of characters from a diverse background. Um a Native American mutant, uh, a mutant from, from Vietnam, uh, a mixed race mutant from Brazil, a Scottish mutant with a very strict religious background, and a rural working class mutant from the American South. Ah yeah, yeah. Climate and McLeod um, pushed to have a team 
where the male characters were outnumbered by the female characters for pretty much the first time, like in any <laughs> superhero comic. Um, it was pretty. It was a, a, a big change and quite like a, a gear shift for the industry. Yeah, I can imagine. And this diversity is becomes a focal point of the team. Mm. So when the new X Men come about in 1975 they are all from different countries but there's nothing not that doesn't that doesn't really pay there's not a huge amount of focus put in to their to their uh, diverse backgrounds or ethnicities or how the world treats them mm. it's all about they're treated differently because they're mutants yeah the original 60s um, x-men they deal with being outsiders but it's this metaphor right because they're mutants yeah. they're all white american characters it's nothing particularly about it's nothing particularly about them it's just about them being mutants mm. the new mutants focuses on each character being rejected and facing life as an outsider for non-mutant reasons uh. like all the and all the mutant metaphors that are used in these X-Men books are so much more potent when the mutant in question is of mixed race or is an Asian-American or from a very deprived economic situation. And and that's like a real key aspect of the, of the New Mutants comics and a big thing that makes it different from the actual X-Men. Whereas the, the if you look at the teenaged angst of Peter Parker, the mm. ultimate kind of Marvel teenager... That angst is based around juggling dating and working and responsibilities. The angst of the New Mutants was literally fighting just to exist in a world that doesn't accept you belong there. Mm. Not because you're a mutant. Like, Sunspot, Bobby's very first appearance is he's, um, a, like, he's subjected to a, a racially aggravated hate crime on, on the football pitch because he's mixed race. That's like one of the first things we see in the New Mutants. Peter Parker's teenage struggle was kind of like not trying to work out what kind of life and future he wants to choose for himself. Hmm. Is it as Spider-Man? Is it as Peter Parker? Is it with this person, Mary Jane? Is it looking after his aunt? Whereas the teenagers in the New Mutants are haunted by like violence and death because of their um, diverse backgrounds, because of because of where they're from, because of who their parents are. Mm. Um, they're, so they're struggling with not having a future to choose at all. The tone is much darker, and the social awareness is much higher. Clement took a, a, a very dark tone in this series, and he didn't shy away from depicting, like I said, racially motivating hate crimes, mm. modern-day slavery, or even sexual assault. Um, at one point, the entire team is killed by an alien being Ooh. and then they all return to life at the end of the story right sounds kind of de rigueur for a, a superhero story oh yeah but the new mutants became the first mainstream comic to really focus on the repercussions of what that would be like death and rebirth Ooh. something that are tropes of the superhero story I like the that. psychological impacts of characters dying kind of haunted the team for a year of storytelling and drove changes in their characters and in their actions. Um, the, the, the series, unlike the X-Men, featured a, a lot more sci-fi and probably more um, mysticism and fantasy elements were introduced. Like They relied on a lot of wilder, more far-fetched stories than the typical X-Men of the 80s the late 70s 80s 
like um it had that coming of age stuff as the teenagers but the new mutants were like visiting demonic dimensions wars in asgard Mm. alternate futures um they visit this ancient Roman civilization that's been preserved in the Amazon rainforest. Um, it is, it is, oddly, a, a, the mysticism, supernatural. They lean more and more into this. That 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 kind of darker tone that the the comic book had was really heightened with the arrival of um, artist Bill Sekovich. Like Sinkovich we've talked about him on our Moon Knight episode. That's where he'd had a lot of success drawing Moon Knight. And we we looked into um, his incredible art style, yeah. Um, but he was still working within the confines of like a traditional superhero comic, and the art style that that demands. When he gets to the New Mutants, Sinkovich's art style starts to really evolve and becomes very experimental, highly expressive, kind of avant garde, mm. um, unlike anything ever seen before in in mainstream comics. If you um, can take a look, Will, at the first three images I've sent you as kind of examples of Sinkovich's artwork, like there is nothing like this in superhero comics at the time. Mm. You can, can you see how the, there is this kind of um, exper- it is avant-garde in the way it's put together? Like it's it's just an incredibly odd way of interesting way of drawing. When was this again? 19 oh when he joined the comic oh gosh 84 85 maybe because like the, the sure. i mean the closest thing i can think of and this is obviously coming way after would be that arkham asylum comic which was um, just start full of stark imagery that was psychological that's 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 bill sekovich yeah yeah oh yeah is that the same guy that's is this it? guy yeah yeah no way yeah, yeah. amazing um so um the brilliant writer, comic book writer Gail Simone, um, I'm just going to read some praise about this guy because he's incredible. Um, she sp- spoke about um, Sekovich saying, It's strange to think about Bill Sekovich um, that you can call him the finest artist in comics and still somehow be underselling it. Mm. I've never seen a piece of work by Bill that didn't make me stop whatever noise is going on in the world and my own brain just to marvel at it, to soak it in. Um, to soak in the intelligence and heart of it you don't just observe Bill's work you live it Yeah. Um, and pretty famous um, painter illustrator comic book creator Jill Thomas said his work changed what people expected out of comic book storytelling and sequential art and made it possible for everyone who wanted to use paint as their medium of choice to pick up a brush to look at it is to experience energy on a page I am constantly in awe of him consistently inspired and revitalized by the amazing art that he creates um as sinkovich kind of continued to experiment with his art style he also provided fully painted covers for the new mutants Mm. um using this paint style instead of you know um, one artist does the lines another artist comes in as the shading and another artist comes in as the coloring you know he was painting these gorgeous covers um that's never more apparent than during um this particular era we're going to talk about with this movie um Sinkovich's art style really helped to break through almost like the white noise of the traditional comic book art style to help the new mutants really stand out on the shelf it was controversial there are a lot of readers who 
you know, didn't respond to this terribly well. You know, you go from reading a very traditional um, art style to reading this, it can be very jarring. Um, but it's really iconic. Um, and it's from this era, the Sinkovich era, that the New Mutants began leaning further and further into kind of like the horror side of supernatural elements. Mm. And a highlight of, of, of which is the Demon Bear saga, from which this movie takes huge elements and inspiration. Let's take a little time now to explore and go through the the history of the character and the journey to get here from the comic book side of things. Because, Will, man, we've never had anything like this in 20 episodes. We've never had anything like this in Marvel vs. Marvel so far. You're, there's some exciting things to talk about, especially in the video game areas that you're going to really be jazzed about. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's 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 certainly the most unique path we've looked at. Um, this is the most modern character we've we've to get the own movie that we've looked at. Really? Um, yeah. Um, he's uh, he's created in 1990. Oh wow. Um, so it's it, it, 1990. <clears throat> there's a an artist called Rob Leefield, uh, a bombastic macho artist in terms of his art, not him as a person. Mm. Uh, we're, we're we're in the what you call the image era, okay, where dynamic artists like Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Jim Valentino. And Rob Leefield can really transform a Marvel or a DC comic book sales with their impressive front covers and their exciting artwork inside. This is also the era of the X-Men. Chris Claremont, as we talked about in our X-Men episode, has turned the X-Men into an absolute powerhouse of a comic book in the 1980s. From one of the worst performing comic books to the biggest and secured them this this cartoon series that's about to start, this toy line, all of that comes from Chris Claremont's incredible like 16-year run on, on the X-Men. Now, the X-Men have a spin-off comic book um, around this time um, that's that called The New Mutants, which is about a new generation. You might, you know, there was, a, there was a movie about it very recently. It's about a new generation of teenagers mm. training to become X-Men. Sales are in the absolute toilet. It's the worst performing of all the X-Men books. Marvel are desperate to inject some new life into this, or they're going to have to cancel the series. So they hand New Mutants over to Rob Leefield, who is getting a lot of attention and has done increased sales over at DC for a uh, another you know comic book that no one was buying called Hawk and Dove. They hand New Mutants <laughs> over to... Rob Leefield and, and writer Fabian Nassiza. And straight away, there is a big upswing in sales. In, in, in their second in- issue, they introduce a character called Cable. Mm. A grim, brooding, and violent stranger with a dark, mysterious past and a secret connection to the X-Men. New Mutants almost immediately start selling an additional... 300,000 copies a month. Ooh. That's Rob Leefield. It's Fabian Nassia. Nassia, to be sure, but it's Rob Leefield and it's Cable. 
As the sales continue on this upward trend, Marvel know Rob Liefeld is becoming a superstar. He's the reason people are buying the comic. So they give him more creative control over the over the series. He becomes the plotter, coming up with the stories. <laughs> and Caesar becomes the guy that writes all the dialogue. Mm. Um, Liefeld is throwing out tons of new characters. It's important to know that because... It's not like he introduces a new character and it's a hit. He introduces a new character and it's a hit. It's more like throwing pasta at a wall to see what <laughs> sticks. Okay, Tons of new characters. New heroes, new villains, new anything. Um, Leafield is looking for a hit. And Cable massively was. And Cable would go on to dominate X-Men storylines for like five or six years. From New Mutants over to the regular series. Um, and it, and it's during this time that Deadpool first appears. He first appears in the New Mutants as a deadly mercenary sent to kill Cable and the, the teenage superheroes. Now, in the 1980s, we go over to the competition, DC Comics. They're having wild success with a comic book called The New Teen Titans. And in that, <laughs> there is a deadly mercenary called Deathstroke who's sent to kill ah. the teenage superheroes. Yeah, I know Deathstroke. Everything about Deadpool originally, in his design and his intent, is almost a direct rip-off of Deathstroke. The concept, the design, carrying swords and guns at the same time. Yeah. So yeah, much yeah. so that when um, Caesar first saw the concept, um, sorry, the design for the character, he says... That looks like you've uh, you've just drawn Deathstroke, um, and and when it came time to create Deadpool's surname, Nasisa made fun of Rob Leefield by giving Wade the same last name as Deathstroke. <laughs> Both had Slade as the surname because mm. Nasisa was just like openly drawing a parallel and poking fun and and taking the taking the Mickey. Mm. Now, when, when when Deadpool first appears, you would not recognise him. I mean, design-wise, appearance-wise, you would. But Deadpool appears as a grim, brooding, and violent stranger with a dark and mysterious past and a secret connection to the X-Men. Exactly the same as Cable uh. the year earlier. Um, unfortunately, that is because Rob Liefeld only has one record... And he plays it again and again and again. In fact, in the same issue where Deadpool makes his first appearance, we also get the first appearance of Gideon, mm. a grim, brooding, and violent stranger <laughs> with a dark, mysterious past and a secret connection to the X-Men. And we also get the first Ugh. appearance of Domino, a grim, brooding, and violent stranger with a dark, mysterious past and a secret connection to the X-Men. Wow. But none of that matters. Because the characters are so 90s, it's unreal. And that makes them a hit. They capture the spirit of macho fiction in superhero comics at the time. So mm. much so that in 1991, Marvel cancels the New Mutants and has Leafield and Nasisa relaunch Cable and the Teenage X-Men in a brand new comic called X-Force. Mm. Brilliant name, brilliant you know team name and 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 title name of the comic, 
Issue 1 sells over 5 million copies. Ooh. It's the biggest selling comic book of all time when it's released. That record got beat not too long after, but X-Force Issue 1 still remains to this day the second biggest selling comic of all time. And it's it's in X-Force that Deadpool would make numerous appearances as the mercenary gunning for the team and trying to kill Cable. You know, mm. He's a villain. Straight up villain, grim, n- nothing that you would recognise from, from, from the movie. This success is absolutely huge for Marvel. Um, Rob Leefield appears in a Spike Lee-directed commercial for Levi Jeans, highlighting him as the superstar artist behind X-Force. <laughs> you cannot buy publicity like that. That's insane. You cannot buy it. it, it the, the, the commercial's out there on, on YouTube. It was like a commercial put together to highlight people with really cool jobs, mm. and they're wearing Levi, right? <laughs> um Marvel have a, a line of X-Men action figures um, spinning out of their hugely popular Fox cartoon series, which we've talked about a lot. It was a real touchstone in the 90s. Marvel make the decision. The first line of toys from the X-Men cartoon series was really, really successful. Mm. Marvel and Toy Biz decide the second wave of these toys will be based around Cable Deadpool and X-Force. Ooh. That's the popularity level in, in, in this period of time. In 93, Deadpool gets his own limited series written by Nasir, but with no input from Rob Leefield. Good. Right. <laughs> After what you told me, it's like, get him away. Get him Rob away. Rob Leefield had left Marvel um, with... Jim Lee, Jim Valentino, mm. Todd McFarlane, every other superstar freelancer, they all left Marvel en masse in the early 90s, walked out the front door, and started their own rival comic company called Image Comics, which to this day publishes The Walking Dead and yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I've heard them from. Yeah. The Deadpool's first series in 93... Very similar to a lot of X-Men stories at the time. It's focused on Deadpool's black mercenary life, his, his, his shady past in Black Ops military stuff. It's very derivative of Wolverine's solo series. And, and it's not anything like what the character would become. Um, by 95, Deadpool's popularity has practically evaporated. He is relegated to a few minor appearances here and there. Like from the... He was white hot in 91, 92, maybe 93. By 95, you couldn't get a a, a colder character. Um, In 1997, things really change. Well, hmm. okay, I'm overstating that. (laughs) Creatively, things change. In 97... Um, Deadpool there's a new Deadpool series from writer Joe Kelly and artist Ed McGuinness and this is where Deadpool changes forever Okay. now Deadpool is funny (laughs) which relatively hadn't happened before Mm. it's still not popular 
Marvel goes out of their way to tell Kelly and McGuinness that sales are so low they should really only expect to last five or six issues. They're constantly being told, you're under threat of cancellation, you're under threat of cancellation, the sales aren't good, got to get the sales up, guys, you're going to get cancelled. And and several times it is saved by an outpouring of um, fan fan enthusiasm, like letter-writing campaigns from fans of the comic book, because Joe Kelly and Ed McGuinness are doing something with Deadpool that Marvel fans haven't really had in a little while, and it's really fun for them, Mm. but there's not enough of them. Yeah, yeah. Deadpool kind of limps along with low sales, appearing in various comic books, but no real spotlight, no real popularity. That goes on for a decade. Um, And then in 2008, in anticipation of his appearance in the upcoming Wolverine Origins movie, (laughs) a writer called Daniel Way, Marvel comics don't know what the movie's going to, what it's going to be, you know? And they just all they know is a movie is going to come out with one of our characters. We need to have a book. We need to have a comic we can sell to people when they come <laughs> in off the street. I've just seen this movie. I want to buy Wolverine and and Sabretooth. And who was the other guy? Oh yeah, Deadpool. We need a book, right, that we can sell them. Um, when X Men First Class came out, Marvel had a <laughs> a comic book called X Men First Class that featured none of the characters from the movie. They just needed a thing. <laughs> That they can sell when a customer says, I've just seen that first class movie. Can I read the comic? Yeah, there you go. This one is set in the 1920s. Cool. Um, so so they, they launch a brand new Deadpool series with, with this writer, Daniel Way. And Way decides to turn the volume way, way up on the moronic juvenile humour Utterly ridiculous stories, and and uh, another writer called um, Colin Bell, Colin Bun, Colin something, does very similar things in 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 the same in the same way at the same time. It's completely out of touch with the silent, topless black ops mercenary character from the movie. Mm. But this approach works. It is a decent, medium sized. Especially for the era, hits Deadpool sells better than it has in fifteen years, and fans are now paying attention to the crazy antics of the character. Like between two thousand and nine and two thousand and twelve, there were an astounding eleven different comic series starring Deadpool. Eleven. No character in comic history has ever been that prolific before. And a lot of the char- a lot of those series like had no connection to the rest of the Marvel universe. Um there were things featuring the Deadpool Core, okay, which mm. was a team featuring Deadpool, Lady Deadpool, <laughs> Dogpool, Kidpool and Headpool. That one was just a disembodied head of Deadpool. They they float around alternate realities doing wild, crazy stuff. There's a series called Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe, which is a story in which Deadpool kills every single 
hero, villain, and character <laughs> in the Marvel universe. It's ludicrous. It's over the top. It, it, it's bizarre. There's a series called um, Deadpool Illustrated, in which Deadpool goes into historical fiction and starts killing Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, Moby <laughs> Dick. Um, there's a oh, series. God. Then they realise they've gone. How far can we possibly take this? The next series after that is Deadpool Kills Deadpool, where all the alternate versions of Deadpool start killing each other. You know, it it's zany, silly humour that looks even more ridiculous out of context. And that's where Deadpool goes viral. Ah. Pages, pages of these books get uploaded to Imga and Tumblr <laughs> and become popular with people who have no idea who the character is, mm. have never read a comic book in their life, the more ridiculous, the more viral. Yeah, yeah. And that, combined with these comic books, it creates this, this huge explosion of popularity for Deadpool from 2009 on through. I mean, he gets then um, laid out in, in these uh, various video games that Marvel is making at the time, the Ultimate Alliance games he's featured in, but especially 2011's Marvel vs. Capcom 3. We've talked about that quite a bit on this show because it features kind of some fringe characters here and there. But Marvel vs. Capcom 3 doesn't just feature Deadpool. They include loads of his insults and jokes. <laughs> and that... There were viral videos of kids who had never read a Marvel comic... They, their favourite character is Deadpool, and they are copying the jokes, they're copying the insults. It made them a smash hit character with kids, that, that 2011 um, video game. Uh, so much so that 2013, Deadpool gets his own video game, mm. written by Daniel Way. Um, and they have uh, a marketing campaign that doesn't look too dissimilar from what we saw with this movie. The, the the Deadpool breaks the fourth wall and he like annotates the uh, press release with his own notes. He sh- someone shows up in co- Deadpool cosplay at press releases to screw with the guys making the video game. You know, very fourth wall breaking. What do you reckon the budget on that video game was? Will two thousand thirteen Deadpool game? Two thousand. Okay, I'm not going to going to be good with video game budgets, but I'm going to go with. Two million dollars. What's the budget of this movie? Uh, was it fifty-eight? Yeah, fifty-eight million dollars. Deadpool's two thousand and thirteen video game. The budget is one hundred million dollars. No, it's one of the most expensive video games ever developed at that time. The I've, budget I've yet to is play nearly it. twice the budget of this movie. How does that work? I have no idea. I'm not in the video game business, but they were obviously so enamoured with the character, hmm. and they saw the smash hit of the Capcom uh, Marvel Capcom Three. They saw the the viral sensation. They saw eleven different comic series from '09 to '12, and they went all in on this video game. Hundred million. Oh, too right, too right. I, I've yet to play the game. It got taken off Steam 
because of licensing issues with Marvel, but I'm going to try and find a way to right. play it because I wanted to play it for some time but never really got round to it. So that's where we are. We didn't really touch too much on the Wolverine X-Men Origins uh, because you know that's still something we can do a deep dive on one day in the future. But um, I, I'd argue that version of Deadpool bears no resemblance to this version of Deadpool. And then I think... <laughs> The what's important is the comic book history, the sales history, the viral history, and the mm. video game history. I think without Tumblr, you might not get this movie. Without you know uh, Marvel vs. Capcom three, without without without, and without of course Rob Liefeld and Fabian Nicieza, who created the character in nineteen ninety, one of the one of the most recent characters we've ever tackled. Um, on this podcast let's take a little trip behind the page now Mm. um, to explore the comic book origins of this story um, which as we've said is one of the true classic Marvel stories and one of the most influential comic books um, of, of all time Mm. Uh, in the early 80s, this comic came out in 1981, and in the early 80s, the creative team of Chris Clement and John Byrne have taken the X-Men from the doldrums of, of, of sales and the doldrums of mm. fan interest and created the hottest, most talked-about comic at Marvel or DC, and the best-selling. Um, they have just finished the epic Dark Phoenix saga, uh, which we chronicled, um, which shook the comic book world um, by killing off a, a a major character at a time when that simply wasn't done. Major characters did not die in in comic books from the 30s through the to the 70s. Mm. The only real example of a major character dying is the death of Gwen Stacy. Um, Clement and Byrne, when they killed Jean Grey, they they did it. They told such an epic. Um, fantastic, dramatic, and emotional story mm. that led to then this this climactic and impactful moment. Uh, it, it rocketed to the top of the sales charts, and it was an instant. Cl- it was an instant classic, and everyone knew it. Like mm. there was nobody, nobody was on the fence about the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah. So the question becomes: In the early eighties, after that, what do you do? Next, how do you follow a classic? How do you follow maybe the greatest comic book story of all time? And on top of that, the band is breaking up. Mm. Clement and Byrne had never had an easy working relationship together on X-Men. And that had been put under more and more strain over the years. So the way it worked was that um, John Byrne had come on board as just the uh, penciler, just the artist, just he says um <laughs> at the start of their collaboration but he'd become such an intrinsic part of the creative process that um the stories were now co-plotted by clement and burn so they would come up with the story ideas the concepts the plots together and then um john burn would draw the story and and chris clement would then write the script and um the the, the, the all the dialogue all the words so Byrne felt that because Chris Claremont had essentially the final say, because his artwork, John Byrne's artwork was finished, it was handed then over to Chris Claremont, and Claremont could write 
and have the characters say and the dialogue boxes say whatever he wanted. John Byrne felt that Claremont was using that position to change the X-Men comics from the original ideas they both had together. And he felt that was happening Mm. far too often and his power wasn't... His creative input and creative power wasn't being respected and all that kind of stuff. So John Byrne's leaving the X-Men and he'd go on um, to have memorable runs on the Fantastic Four... um, Eventually, going to have memorable runs on on She Hulk. Um, but to, one of the great things that he did is the um, some characters they introduced in the X Men, the Canadian uh, superheroes Alpha Flights, which were mm. Wolverines or Running Buddies. Yeah. John Byrne went on to kind of um, write and draw um, that that series, and he became a um, a real a really great auteur in his own as the writer and the artist. Um, so. How is the best team in the business going to follow up on the Dark Phoenix and go out together (laughs) with a bang? The idea came in a couple of different ways. So Mm. uh, they'd received a ton of hate mail after killing off Jean Grey. Yikes. And that gave them an idea. Um, So Chris Claremont said that John had this idea for essentially upping the ante. Mm. From the standpoint of pure publishing practicality and mild greed, we were saying, you thought we were suicidal by killing one character. <laughs> now we're going to kill them all. Um, and the, the X-Men editor at the time, Louise Simonson, said, with Dark Phoenix, it was the first realization we had that the comic book shops... Sorry, it was the first realization that comic book shops had that major deaths sell. Yep. After the... Um, death of Jean Grey, dealers would call up. Louise Simonson says dealers would call me up and jokingly say, when so, when's the issue? When are you going to, when everybody dies, I want to order a lot of that one. So Simonson um, made this move that when the second issue of the two-part Days of Future Past story comes out, it features the tagline, this issue Everybody dies, and if you fire open the Ooh. the middle image I've sent you, Ooh. oh, you can see that, um, yeah. uh, which is uh, an image of a sentinel absolutely destroying Wolverine. Yeah, um, the sentinels are very intrinsic to this story. Um, John Byrne wanted to use the sentinels because he really thought they were cool, um, uh, but he, he said that Chris Claremont didn't want to use sentinels because he clement said sentinels are wimpy wimpy uh, yeah not mm. the lovely burger um <laughs> no of course you don't know what you mean. not the british burger chain not the british burger chain uh, like his his position was that like sentinels are meant to be mutant hating weapons of genocide mm. but all they ever do is like <clears throat> capture the x-men and tie them up yeah. And they never really do anything. Um, and John Byrne said, no, the problem is you write them, Wimpy. That's your problem. <laughs> if you let me plot this story with Sentinels, I'll show you what the Sentinels can really do. Yeah. So, Days of Future Past hits the shelves and it hits the readers in the face. Like, from the get-go. It begins in media res, as we say, with the action Mm. happening, the story um, in progress. Immediately showing readers a horrifying, dystopian world where all their heroes and favourite characters are dead. Mm. 
And North America is ruled by these compassionless overlord sentinels. Mm. Today, in in the here and now, we're very used to movies, TV shows, starting in the middle of the action and then giving us a flashback to show how events got so exciting and so bad, right? It's become a trope of TVs and movie storytelling mm. because it's that much easier to grab an audience um, with uh, a bit of immediately exciting, tense, life-threatening, wah, this happened, and then mm. go, well, let me show you how this happened, rather than build <laughs> up to it, right? But this kind of storytelling was not commonplace in 1981. Mm. It, there was a few, there's, you know, Citizen Kane, Sunset Boulevard. There's yeah. a few times it's been done. But they hadn't inspired thousands of imitators. Like we now currently, it's a deluge. Everything starts in the middle, works mm. its way back, and yeah. everything starts in media res. Um, but starting a comic book this way in 1981 was new it was fresh it was bold readers opened their comics and everything was in danger immediately the reader didn't have any of the normal comforts like familiar characters familiar settings it's not just starting the issue with the x-men tied up and Mm. you go i wonder how this happened everyone is dead the world has ended right that's where you start so you don't have any of these familiar things to bed you in as you open your comic book in the month they open their comic to see the world they thought they knew the world of the x-men twisted around turned upside down and their favorite heroes are gone or powerless right Hmm. on on top of that they're seeing this dystopian future. Now, that's another thing that we're today we're all used to. Yeah. A slew of sci-fi stories in books and comics and TVs and movies presenting us with a terrible future. But this comic, published in 1981, predates The Terminator, mm. predates Blade Runner. Mm. Right? It, it, the, the only thing it doesn't predate is Judge Dredd, really. Yeah. Um, but even that, that was at the time more satirical than it was dramatic yeah i was about to say it's yeah it's more black comedy then so dystopian futures of the matrix and all that blade runner they haven't happened yet um um, nobody's saying climate and burn did invented these ideas Mm. they were mixing together a bunch of sci-fi concepts from Mm. books and old tv shows and stuff but to the average reader the idea of reading about a future world where the good guys have all lost, where hope is dead and humanity is dying, that was, again, new, fresh, mm. bold, and scary. This is coming out before Alan Moore's V for Vendetta. Ooh. It's coming out before Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, before these comic books would present worlds with dark futures to be afraid of. Comics historian Sean Howe, who, who wrote a book called um, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, said of this kind of classic Marvel tale, it shook people up when they read it. There was nothing to gird you, no compass mm. to help you out. You go into that issue without any sense of how it could possibly connect to the stories you've been reading in the series last month and the month before. And then you stay in that confused state off the top of my head I can't think of any prior examples like it 
in serial storytelling. It is doing something very sophisticated for 1981, the storytelling and the dystopian setting. This is easily the, the most bleak story Marvel had ever told at, at, at this point. And yes, the 80s get quite dark. We talked yeah. about Daredevil and all of that, and obviously we're going to get V Vendetta and Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and stuff. But the bleakness comes from something else. So sure, Gwen Stacy had died, but the very next issue, Spidey beats the bad guy and punishes him. The end. Hmm. Days of Future Past shows us a world where all the good people are gone and virtually and they actively say there can be no vengeance because the killers are robots who feel nothing this evil has removed even the hope and the chance of vengeance you can't save the world that's gone they all know that from the start and and in so, in so many bold sort of action stories, you go, we can't save everyone, but we can at least get some revenge. This yeah. story is saying, no, you can't. No, you can't. They feel nothing. There can be no vengeance. Oof. We have removed even that dark part of the soul where you might feel a little bit of pleasure from wiping them out. You can't have that because there's no feeling in these monsters, right? And there's kind of no real resolution either. The mm. horrible dystopian world is not avoided. Um, the no one is punished. <laughs> no one is punished at the end of this. The, the reader is left like without a life raft. It's incredible. That um, feels very pushes... existential. That feels very. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, we're we're talking about life and death, and whether anything we do now has meaning in the future. Yeah, exactly. Very existential. And it pushes X-Men to this very... Like a darker, a much darker area than the Dark Phoenix saga. Mm. The the influence uh, of Days of Future Past is um, is huge. Um, if you bring up, I think it might be the first image I've sent you, which is uh, Wolverine, an older Wolverine with Kitty Pride, and there's a big poster behind him. Mm. And you see that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah, I remember this image. Yeah? Why do you... Why, why, as you, you said, you've seen that online a few times. I've seen that online. I think we've um, talked. I swear we've talked about this one before. What's the poster behind them? The poster behind them is a grid of profile pictures of different X Men, from Cyclops to Beast to uh, Storm, and over each uh, profile picture is a a tag saying "slain," "apprehended." Yeah, just those two. So yeah, so it's showing killed. all the yeah. death, and it is that is perhaps the. Um, the most imitated comic book cover of all time. Oh yeah, certainly, certainly the most imitated Marvel cover of all time. Mm. There might be the, the death of Supergirl in in um, Crisis on Infinite Earths is quite heavily kind of imitated, homaged. Um, mm. But artist after artist after artist paid homage to that sensational, eye grabbing artwork of John Byrne and, and, and Terry Austin um, because it. It's not just a pose. It is telling part of the story before yeah. you even open the comic. Um, and as we said, the second issue features um, the, the tagline, in this issue, everyone dies. Mm. Um, and audiences would believe it because they were so upset. And despite the fact it was a great story, audiences were genuinely upset and offended and angry after Jean Grey's death. So 
two, three issues later, everyone dies, I think audience would be like, yeah, you probably would, you sickos. Um, <laughs> Days of Future Past would influence a whole slew of dystopian stories in Marvel and, and, and DC Comics, from Age of Apocalypse to Old Man Logan, Age of Ultron, Kingdom Come for DC. And it would it would hammer home a central theme for the next mm. decade of the X-Men. The government are scary. The establishment is dangerous. Those in power are easily scared. And easily scared groups of people mm. do horrifying things to those they can do things to. Yes. From this point on, the X-Men knew that they had to keep fighting because their future was dark and dangerous and those in power can never be trusted. Let's go behind the page now on the miniseries that allegedly inspires this this movie and it does take a lot of <laughs> superficial elements from um it's a series that ran in uh, the very end of 1982 from September to December it's just four issues long it's a miniseries um and it's it, it might be one of my favorite marvel stories ever i i i adore this i mean i had the trade paperback collection i bought it from a bookshop called webley's in hanley stoke-on-trent which was a great old wonderful bookshop um we'd go to go to sort of uh hanley stoke was the nearest city to me and we'd go you know every for six to eight weeks and i could be able to go to a comic book shop and i remember taking it on holiday with me when i was in my in my sort of early teens mm. and it was one of the few book things i'd taken with me and so i read it and i reread it and i've got an awful lot of this buried into my brain but it is objectively i've gone back and reread it recently it's objectively very very good it is held up as a classic for a reason it's written by Chris Claremont, who we've talked about a lot when we talk about the X-Men, the father of the X-Men, the guy that um, wrote the series for 16 years and created all the great X-Men stories that you care to think of, from the Phoenix Saga, Days of Future Past, um, all these seminal moments. And it's also, um, the other half of it is created by um, Frank Miller, the guy behind things like Dark Knight Returns and... Um, and watch uh, not Watchmen. What am I talking about? Sin City. <laughs> <clears throat> and they came up with this kind of the basic idea of this mini series while they were sharing a cab on the way back from the San Diego Comic Con in uh, in 1981. Um, so it's this incredible pairing of two of Marvel's hottest talents, like one the Clement is in the middle of this incredible hot streak in a franchise that he essentially created although he didn't but he did um and and miller is um has been doing genre redefining work on daredevil go mm. back to our daredevil episode we praise this an awful lot he's taking this slightly silly character of daredevil and creating this crime noir story with him um his artwork is probably never been i don't think it's been better um <clears throat> you know i don't think the sin city stuff is better than what he does on daredevil and in this it's incredible um and they they are not trying to come up they don't have a mandate to do this they just they're in it they're in a taxi they get talking they come up with this clement wrote like an introduction 
um, for the for the mini series. Um, oh, we'll get to that. No, sorry, we'll get to that later. Clement has spoken in an interview about this, and he said, "For the first Wolverine mini series, I was pitching it to Frank Miller, and his blunt response was, I 'I don't want to do four issues of some musclehead cutting people open.'" <laughs> to come out of that quote, just a minute to say, I don't. I can't believe Frank Miller is saying that. He's built his entire career on tough guys acting tough. Yeah. Um, that's weird, but okay. Climate would say, I said, that's good. And he said, why? So we started talking about who Wolverine is as a person and how he got to where he is. Throughout the course of a four hour traffic jam on I 5, we evolved the concept that we wanted to play with. It had nothing to do with hacking and stabbing or him being a superhero. It had everything to do with him being a man trying to reach for something beyond his grasp Mm. while also dealing with the prejudice of Mariko's father who views him as nothing more than an animal and Wolverine struggling to prove that he is more than that. There's an awful lot going on in this incredible four-issue miniseries. It's very pulp heavy Mm. it is a pulp story through and through um that's frank miller isn't it he does that kind of uh pulp yes but this is very very early on in him doing it oh okay you know sin city has not been conceived of yet Mm. he's doing great work on daredevil this this miniseries is, is, is is pulp through and through i mean not very basically wolverine gets knocked out a bunch of times that's very uh that's very uh, pulpy. That's very um, noir esque. Um, the central character in a pulp, in a noir, sorry, not in a pulp. The central character in a noir story is 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 usually caught up in corruption and and, and politics, like a machine bigger than the man himself. Mm. An awful lot of PIs. You can look at Chinatown. You can look at the Big Sleep. Yeah, you can look at things like that. Um, it's a man manipulated and lied to usually by women by femme fatales by people pulling his strings and it's usually a morally grey man with a past striving to tr- to do a, a single honourable thing even though it really kind of hurts him in the end mm. that's generally how noir works but there's this wonderful like synergy of what's going on like at the time, I don't know if it is true now, but at the time, American readers would, any any readers would associate Wolverine with the lone cowboy archetype, right? He he was drawn and to look a little bit like Clint Eastwood with the hair and the sideburns, and he was written with his kind of narration to be a little bit like Clint Eastwood, yeah. the strong, the silent type, the man with no name, all of those kind of tropes, and of course. Those iconic westerns that you take, that you associate with Clint Eastwood, were themselves heavily influenced by classic samurai films. Ah, whether it's The Magnificent Seven from The Seven Samurai, Fistful of Dollars from Yojimbo. Hmm. So there is this idea, this very smart idea, of just getting Wolverine to embody both of those things: the, the samurai and the cowboy. It has these. The central themes um, play an awful lot towards um, 
a read a reading of Japan at the time in the eighties. Um, mm. And this is perhaps a Western reading of Japan. I'm not saying that this is entirely what Japan is or was at the time, but Japan was known for having a long military history. Um, by 1982, of course, there's a Second World War. By 82, the, the the history of colonialism and the history of their expansion and that conflict and the World War Two and all that kind of stuff was weighing very heavily on on the on the public. Um, and their their national identity, their national culture, the samurai, the ninjutsu um, soldiers, that was kind of attracting that. There'd been like an a strong anti-militarism sentiment in the country um, mm. by the time we get to the nineteen eighties. Um, so there's always, but despite despite that, there's always this kind of association um, with warriors, with with ninjas, with samurai, with soldiers. That is a part of kind of Japan's cultural identity, um, and these are these are like these are archetypal figures that aren't just soldiers they're soldiers with a very strict kind of code of honor mm. um and it's whether that code of honor that a soldier or warrior can have does it do enough to mask essentially the savagery of combat the savagery of killing of taking a life within some sort of civilized framework of honor and duty and, mm. and codes and all of that and oaths and that's really important to this story the, of whether Wolverine can inhabit these two things, so a lot of the central themes kind of based around this this idea of animal versus man. Mm. Um, in whether he gives into his base desires, the things that have been driving him for an awful lot, an awful long period of time in the X Men comics, or whether he does, he, he tries to go in this other direction. He strives to be a man of honor, strives to operate by a code and not just kind of a self-interest self-indulgent nature um, mm. and whether he can grow Chris Claremont throughout his 16 year history on the X-Men is a huge proponent of characters growing that gets pushed back a lot by editors at Marvel because character growth <laughs> isn't always seen as a positive thing by the people in charge because in their minds well that's great Chris but you're going to leave the comic one day and this franchise has got to keep going whereas Clement wants to evolve all these characters and it was very easy for him to do at the beginning because no one cared about the X-Men but now thanks to him and Terry Austin and John Byrne it's become a powerhouse franchise that that, that is the biggest selling comic at Marvel well now things get a bit more yeah, but you can't change him that much. <laughs> yeah, but we like Wolverine doing this. We like Cyclops doing that. And this this series is all about change. Can Wolverine change is a big part of that, along with this thing of real honour versus the trappings of honour, mm. like as used by the aristocracy to appear to appear civilised. Um quite like a quite like a major part of this so in, in at some point in the in the in the in the miniseries um the characters go and see a play um a kabuki play called 47 ronin mm. um and 
you could there's a lot of this clearly this this play has a uh, this story has a bit of an influence on the the, the Wolverine miniseries itself um Wolverine in the in the comic says of the play and he draws that's why you, you know you pay attention to it because the character main character draws you to it and mm. talks about this play he says it's a tale of honor of loyalty of the samurai determination to see a course through to its end regardless of the cost it embodies all the qualities the japanese revere most in their national character and heritage it influenced um the first game of thrones book as well ah really it's 47 ronin like the start of it anyway Mm. is the story of a humble and deeply honorable lord rural lord Mm. getting caught up in the corrupt politics of the emperor's court ah right and when he gets in there the, the the presence of a truly honorable man disrupts the court because all the aristocracy there are horribly corrupt and on the take and doing this that and the other uh, and really betraying all codes but following perhaps the let following the letter of the of the law whilst behind everyone's back carrying on like anyone's business and so this humble honorable man is is manipulated and insulted and pushed by the corrupt aristocracy until he defends himself but defending himself in the court is an act of aggression ah okay deemed an act of treason and he is killed so he is manipulated and pushed to strike back and then they can throw their hands up and say oh look at him an act of aggression in the upper's court an act of treason and then that's the end for him um it's again it's this real honor versus the pretend honor that the aristocracy might claim that you might claim as being civilized mm. um and on the basis of that once he's died his his um his samurai his his followers and staff the people he looks after 47 of them swear revenge to redeem his honor to go and they, they take this long course which is gonna gonna result in terrible lives for them they will be committing treason. They will be in prison. They will be killed. They'll have all their lands taken from them. Their family will be. But it's it's about that doesn't not that it doesn't matter. But I have to see this through to the end because honor must be served. I have to honor the fallen lord, and I have to take this take revenge on this. Um, and it's about seeing that course through. The person, the people that did this, must pay. Yes, it's going to make my life horrifying, but I just have to do it. Which has a lot of similarities with a lot of um, noir stories. I think as well, this is... Wolverine at this time is not the Wolverine you'd know or recognise to this day. He's a very cantankerous character. Mm. He has not been fleshed out much in the X-Men comics at all. Um he's this guy with this berserker fury just as likely to attack his friends as his teammates and as he's his foes and he's just this kind of wild card character Mm. he's not particularly popular he's not well thought of he's not particularly well liked he kind of is you know but there's this period of time where wolverine is multiple times maybe gonna get axed from the x-men comic um they think that Chris Clement thinks that Nightcrawler should be the the big star of the X Men comic, 
Mm. You know, there's a lot of odd things going on around this period of time of him not really looking like like the 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 the, the main star we know him to be. Um and this story gives him a huge amount of depth. There's a tragedy to the to the to the story that he's given here. There's something noble in Wolverine's attempts to improve himself and to change despite his past and um the 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 the, the quest to be a better man, to be a man at all, to stop being a beast, to choose between these two sort of paths that are in front of him. This comic, one of the best Wolverine stories ever told. It is responsible for absolutely transforming how readers thought and felt about Wolverine. This is responsible for moving him beyond the tropes of the movie musclehead anti-heroes that were so popular. Mm. Rambo, Death Wish, Chuck Norris, which he was kind of cast in. The tough guy. This is the groundbreaking series that gave Wolverine a heart and a soul and absolutely changed the character forever. Let's take a trip now and go behind the page with uh, Deadpool 2. And obviously, in the first the first um, time we looked at Deadpool, the character, we, we did an awful lot on his background and, and his history. I think it's probably really important now to focus on Cable, who is... One of the most popular and important characters of the 80s slash 90s um, and is in, is hugely important for getting Deadpool uh, in, in the first place. I think as we mentioned in the first movie, um, this, this kind of story all begins with an, an X-Men spin-off. The first X-Men spin-off comic mm. that was called The New Mutants, um, which was a story of Professor Xavier wanting to train a new bunch of kids... Um, in the use of their powers, because you know the X Men had become like this fighting team, and he wanted to get back to the spirit of what he started, which was a school for kids who couldn't control their powers. Mm. And he'd seen some of the X Men die over the years, and he wanted to make sure that never happened again. So he started this 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 school, brought these young kids in with a mandate that they will never become X Men. They will never fight for his cause, um, like like Scott and, and and Wolverine and all the others will. However, these kids get up to a lot of rambunctious trouble and end up getting into <laughs> fights and, and di- dilemmas and dramas and aliens and fantasy demons and demon bears and things. And that's the New Mutants. It sales of that really started to slump um, over the years towards the end of the, of the 80s. But they took a sharp, kind of steep turn up when um, a superstar artist called Rob Liefeld took over the penciling duties and then later the co-plotting duties of, of, of the New Mutants comic. Around 1989, the end of 89, start of, um, of, of 1990, that's when Rob Liefeld and, and uh, Louise Simonson and editor Bob Harris kind of introduced this new character. And this new character they introduce is a mysterious mercenary called Cable. And the introduction of Cable also shoots sales up as well. Mm. So it's a combination of Rob Liefeld and and the introduction of this character Cable, which really starts to get people reading this this failing comic, New Mutants, again. Uh, editor Bob Harris has gone on record to say that what they needed to do was they knew they needed to shake things up on the comic, um, and they decided that a new leader would would work. This at the end of the eighties. The start of the 90s, this is the era of like 
extreme yes <laughs> like in we... movies and in tv shows but also in comic books it's the era of the anti-hero that's just starting you know wolverine has been the most popular guy in the x-men for nearly a decade and he's just becoming more and more popular punisher this is a time period go back and check out our, to pull our punisher episode off the off the, out of the archives and yes. off the shelf and listen to that yes this is around that time when the punisher a gun-toting anti-hero is so popular he has four monthly comics more than spider-man <laughs> like wolverine punisher ghost rider is starting to get that around that time as well mm. they 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 want that kind of extreme edgy ultra macho anti-hero just like you're getting in the kind of these action action movies in the 80s as well and they want this character to be a, a contrast to professor x educator yes um learned man scholar they want it to be a man of action um so uh louise uh simonson the, who was writing new mutants at the time uh, along with rob layfield at the time as well uh, decided a military leader would be the the way to go um and Rob Liefeld was was tasked to conceptualize this, like like design this character based on virtually nothing other than warrior. We think war general. Um, it's said that they. This is where in comic books everyone disagrees on who came up with what. <laughs> of course. So both Rob Liefeld and Louise Simonson said, "I had the idea of making him uh, a mysterious time traveler, warrior from the future." So, who knows who came up with that, but that's a central key figure and a key idea to it. Um, Liefeld came up with the name Cable, and there were some other names floating around. So, Rob Liefeld has given an interview where he said, I was given a direction to create a new leader for the New Mutants. There was no name, no description besides a man of action, the opposite of Xavier. I created the look, the name, much of the history of the character... After I named him Cable, Bob Harris suggested Quinn, and Louise Simonson uh, came up with the name Commander X, um, <laughs> which is a very kind of it's yeah it's a very I mean very sixties seventies kind of less sophisticated kind of thing, but I can certainly see it happening at some point in Marvel's that, history. That's the entire nose, not on the nose. Jeez. Yeah, very very true. Yeah. yeah. Um, and around this time, like Rob Liefeld, so this is when a bunch of artists are becoming are driving sales like never before. Jim Lee mm. is driving sales. Will Spatillo, uh, Patissio, sorry, um, and uh, and Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane, they're they're really driving um, sales with their bombastic artwork on front covers. Um, and so Rob Liefeld becomes basically more gains more and more power. Uh, and control over the comic book uh, editor Bob Harris basically promotes him to co-plotter Louise Simonson is kind of demoted certainly and, and she ends up leaving the book because she uh, feels that she's been kicked out the door um, and so Rob Liefeld kind of assumes pretty much control over this comic New Mutants and they bring in a writer called Fabian de Caesar who we've talked about mm. Who is the other co-creator of Deadpool? Fabian the Caesar. The Caesar is brought in to basically write the dialogue. So Rob Liefeld is going to plot the books, and he's going to draw them all. And then when he's written all the plot out, Fabian the Caesar is going to write the dialogue that kind of runs the story through. Um, and uh, this is when they come up with the idea of let's just get rid of the new mutants altogether it the, we we've we've killed or got rid of half the characters anyway and brought in brand new 
edgy, macho, anti-hero characters. Like, the New Mutants doesn't make sense anymore. It's a pacifist concept, and we're trying to create, like, a a more ass-kicking paramilitary team. So, the New Mutants is cancelled in 1991. And in the last Mm. issue... Cable, who has been introduced and become the new leader of the team, has basically reorganised the new mutants, the kids who are never going to become X-Men and have a fight, have now become this, like, platoon of soldiers (laughs) led by Cable. Mm. And the very last thing that happens in New Mutants is he kind of announces them as X-Force. That's the new name. That's who we are. And so... In 1991, New Mutants goes and they launch issue one, relaunch the whole thing as X-Force, created by Rob Liefeld and and Fabian Nassiser. Um, And it is... I've got number one of X-Force. It was released with a big fanfare. Um, It came with an exclusive trading card that you could only get with with that comic. It came in a poly bag, mm. right? So it's sealed in a poly bag, along with um, different variant. Uh, so no, no, not the cards weren't all the same. Um, and that comic sells five million copies, <sighs> the best-selling comic book of all time in 1991. That's a of lot. All time. That's a lot of hot luncheons. It's certainly a lot of hot <laughs> luncheons, and it remains to this day. From 1991 to today, it remains the second best-selling American comic book of all time. Mm. Um, and X-Force is very bombastic and kicks off almost straight away with uh, introducing Deadpool. Um, the X-Force uh, fighting terrorists, the Mutant Liberation Front, led by Strife, a, uh, a very strange, evil, masked mutant with a, with a, a, a mysterious connection to Cable. Um and it's hugely, I mean, five million copies. It is hugely popular. Um, propelled by Leefield's art, mainly, and by this kind of... It, and by Cable. There's no two ways around it. It's not Deadpool selling the book, although Deadpool's a very popular character. Cable is the reason this book is so popular. And Rob Liefeld. Um, the series rivaled Amazing Spider-Man and Uncanny X-Men in mm. popularity. Those are the two flagships that have been running since the 60s. Uh, X-Force has just been launched and it's already right up there. And it's really, <laughs> really popular with this kind of adolescent, pubescent uh, demographic. Um, I mean, Cable, all, so quickly in 91, in the era of tough, gun-toting anti-heroes becomes one of marvel's most popular characters right up there with like i said wolverine and and, and punisher and part of what is so captivating and keeps readers coming back again and again is his mysterious past like they they keep bringing this dropping threads of this (laughs) he meets uh he meets wolverine for the first time yeah wolverine is the most popular character Mm. or maybe second only to spider-man meets Cable for the first time. They're both gruff, tough anti-heroes, and they already know each other, and Wolverine hates him because of a thing that happened in their past together. Right? So uh, Wolverine's the king of the mysterious past that no one knows about. So they, or, they And they keep... They introduce another ex-character called Richter, and Richter is like, I'll always hate you, Cable, for what you did to my dad. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> like, every... Like, he, he's so... He's not just introduced as a new character... 
but it's a new character who is weaved into mm. the fabric of all these other characters. Yeah, that's good. And his mysterious uh, past slash our future becomes the focus of all the X-Men comics throughout 1992, 1993. They they create this in, this big um, crossover event called the Executioner's Song, which ties together all the X-Men comics to one event. And the whole event is centred around Cable, his past, and his arch-nemesis Strife. Um, so Cable, from nowhere to suddenly, boom, the centre of the X-Men, the centre of the most popular comic that was being published, not the centre of the Marvel Universe, but not far off it. Um, and it's, 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 it's really huge. I mean, the X-Men cartoon series is, uh, is, is, is a big hit, and uh, they have this incredibly popular toy line. That came off the back of it. Um, they selling a huge amount of toys. I think it was Toy Biz had the great line. I had tons of these. They were so awesome. But you'd watch the cartoon series on Saturday morning. Then you'd rush out and buy the uh, the Wolverine figure, the Storm figure, the Rogue figure, the Cyclops figure. Maybe not the Cyclops figure. Um, and in 1993, when the toy makers needed a new line of figures... But there weren't enough new characters in the X-Men show. What did they do? They went to Marvel and they said, our second line of figures is going to be Cable and X-Force. Because they're just that popular. They did not have a cartoon series. They did not have a movie. They had nothing but the comic book series. But it was so big, you can't argue with five million copies. So the second line of X-Force, of, of, of these of these. X-Men toys were all X-Force which is why you can get hold of some of the most obscure 90s mutants thanks to this line GW Bridge has an action figure it, you won't know who he is most most people reading comics won't know who he is but he's got an action figure for no reason man um, it was very cool and, and, and as Will alluded to and we talked about in the, the, the Muggle section yeah Cable uh, not X-Force but Cable does appear in the the animated X-Men animated series from the 1990s Slave Island The Cure um the two part the awesome two part episode Time Fugitives which I really hope we get to do um which involves Bishop another time hopping character from another parallel uh future and a four part episode called Beyond Good and Evil um so he he really was already making it into other their media um, was Cable um, and then Cable's popularity waned we've talked about this again and again Will yeah. we talked about it with Deadpool Deadpool's popularity waned hugely in the 90s Ghost Rider it happened to him as well 2004 although I mean Cable gets his own comic and it's published for a decade but with varying degrees of popularity 2004, Fabian de Caesar, the, the co-creator of Cable and Deadpool, um, launches a new series with Marvel called Cable and Deadpool. And this, I mean, that's where Deadpool was first introduced, but this is the time when they get a very, very strong connection to each other. Um, the title characters who don't, Cable and Deadpool, they no longer have their own individual comics, they share this one. Um, how and why on earth would these two be sharing they would never work together they create this really great odd couple buddy cop dynamic 
So, due to some bizarre science fiction plot, their DNA gets uh, weirdly mixed up and similar, right? So, whenever either one of them wants to use this amazing teleportation device that Cable's got, it will not teleport only one of them. It it has to teleport both of them to the same location at the same time. Every time Cable wants to go on one of his missions to save the world or to do something dodgy behind the back of the X-Men, he teleports in and he reappears with Deadpool staring at his face because the <laughs> teleportation machine cannot tell them apart and keeps teleporting them to the same location. Uh. Deadpool does not agree to it. Uh, Cable doesn't agree to it It just keeps happening So it's this great setup where they are Like any great sitcom I guess mm. Where they're forced to be together You mm. know like a, a Lethal Weapon kind of deal yeah. or, or any of those kind of buddy cop movies Or odd couple movies um, And uh, the book is is it's a, it's a hit with the fan base It's a really great mix of humour And action and some really great Ongoing plots that have great Knock on effects um, It found a real home um, and it did some interesting funky stuff like um the sometimes in comic books the very first page will be like a recap page previously yeah. on like you get in tv shows and it'll just be a bit of text saying if you didn't read the last issue spider-man exploded in space and now the silver <laughs> surfer is opened a small boutique um so the Deadpool one, you know, the Cable and Deadpool one starts with generally Cable breaking the fourth wall and talking directly to the audience, which is something that, of course, we see so much of in this movie and that people really love. Trying to rope Cable into doing the same. Cable not understanding who he's talking to. He doesn't understand there is a fourth wall. Um, that was really popular. And then they introduced a, uh, a letters page, in, I think, after the first year, called Dear Deadpool. Um, a letters page in comic books dates back to before the internet and what you do is you write into the editor and you'd say I really liked when uh, Spider-Man made a guest appearance in Daredevil do you think they could team up again in the future Mm. or you say how does Daredevil's powers work I'm a bit confused what happened in issue 3 when this happened and the editor (laughs) would print the letter and then write a little reply in Dear Deadpool Audience, uh, readers would write directly to Deadpool himself and he oh, would answer in print. Fantastic. Um, and he would refer to the fact that he lived in a comic book. And sometimes it even goes so far as to refer to the man who types my answers. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it, it was just uh, lots of really fun, different. A lot of the humor that you see in, in, in Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool does come from. Um, later seasons of, of, of Deadpool but also this Deadpool and Cable series which for the first time put the two guys together um, as this kind of odd couple buddy cups situation Marvel vs. Marvel was researched, written and performed by Rob Holden and Will Preston the show was produced by Will Preston and our theme song was composed and performed by Dan Walsh head to patreon.com slash marvel vs. marvel for awesome bonus content Thank you.